You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Both to God in one body, through the cross by which he put the hostility to death, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to those who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in whom you are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you, as you seat, please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for this great opportune time we have to preach and proclaim your word. We ask, Lord, that you would bless your word and bless us to hear and understand your word. As always, God, hide me behind the cross Take the little I have and make much of it as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. I pray, Lord, that these words would not just be words spoken to us, but words that will revive our souls. I pray that you would give us hope of the gospel of Christ and the hope that we have in Jesus as both Lord and Savior of our life. We love you and thank you and praise you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us for any length of time so far, again, we're going through this series called Mosaic, and in it, uh, we're trying to talk about uh, the church. We talked about um, the book of Ephesus is like a mosaic. It's first and foremost a book of encouragement. And Paul wrote this book while in prison, and unlike other writings, he did not write this letter to contradict any type of heresy or to confront any specific problem or sin. Rather, Paul takes the time as a good pastor to describe the nature and experience of the church. And he challenges believers to function as a living body of Christ while living on earth. Last week, we talked through Paul's four uh, prayers. We talked about that Paul uh, expressed his desire for us to know and understand the great wealth that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by praying four specific prayers. The first prayer that he prayed was that we might know him. We might know God. Verse 17b, that we might know God's calling, 18a, that we might know God's riches, 18b, and that we might know God's power. And now out of praying and, and, and really asking the Lord to help us to know him, he now goes to a place of helping us to understand our identity in Christ and how Christ has allowed us to know him. So today, this morning, we'll talk through and walk through Ephesians chapter two, but we'll do it in this way. We'll look at verses one through three, looking at how sin works against us, sins work against us. In verses four through nine, we'll look at God's work for us. In verse 10a, we'll look at God's work in us. In 10b, we'll look at God's work through us. In verses 11 through 12, we'll look at God's call to remember. And then in verses 13 through 22, we'll look at Jesus' work of redemption. 
you know, if you don't know me very well, one of the things that I love to do and really love to uh, learn more about is the aspect of uh, organizations and how they work and leadership and leadership styles and techniques. And one of the things that I've learned um, in my studies is this aspect of what they call a leading and lagging indicator. Anybody has ever heard of that leading and lagging indicator? I see some hands up. Wonderful. Uh, and this aspect, uh, for those who may not know or understand kind of what this is, is very simple. I shouldn't say it's very simple. Uh, it's simple for me. I, I, I understand it. Maybe somebody else might, and that's okay. We're all different and still made an image of God. Amen. Uh, but leading and lagging indicators is simply this. Um, they, are, they are ways in which you can, uh, another way you could say that is cause and effect, right? Um, so leading indicators are the things that you do. It's the things that you put forth in order to have an intended outcome, which is then um, the lagging indicator, right? So leading is more of the cause, it's what you do, it's how you press, it's the things that you prioritize in your life. And the lagging indicator is the result. It's the thing that comes out of that. In our passage of scripture right here in Ephesians 2, we see kind of this aspect of leading and lagging indicators. We talk about, um, we see from Apostle Paul, the things that have caused us, specifically as we talked in Ephesians 1, um, our identity of being those who are chosen in him before the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless before him. We talked about um, also how in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We talked about how in him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works everything in agreement with the purposes of, of his will. And we also talked about in chapter one of him who gave us the promised Holy Spirit as the very down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. We see that these things have been enacted for us, but we actually, actually now get to see the, what's the result of that. What's the result of, of God's giftedness of giving us these prized possessions in Christ? So it starts off very simple and very too at the very beginning. It says these words, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice with me here. Paul gives us four indicators or a, a full-length picture of the terrible spiritual condition of the unsaved person. That we didn't just become a part of Christ's kingdom because of our own choosing. We came because of the things that God, what, what God has done in and through us and honestly despite us. So Ephesians 2 begins this way. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, of course, dead, this is, means spiritually dead. That is, um, we are unable to understand and appreciate spiritual things. It, it means that uh, we possess no spiritual life and, and we can do nothing of ourselves to please God apart from God. And just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli, so a person who is spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things. Let me give you an analogy of this. An analogy of this would be a corpse, right? A, a, a person who has passed on, who has gone to be with the Lord or otherwise, a, a person, a, a, a dead person does not hear the conversation going on in the funeral parlor. They have no appetite for food or for drink. They feel no pain. That person is just dead. Just so with the inner man of the unsaved person, 
What Paul is saying here is our spiritual uh, faculties, if you will, are not functioning. They are, they cannot function until God gives us life. Notice with me the cause of this dysfunctioning faculties. It is in verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice that the cause of this spiritual death is trespasses and sins. Romans 6, 23 puts it this way. It says the wages of sin is death. In the Bible, death simply means separation. It, it means uh, not only physical separation from the body, but it also means a spirit that is uh, being separated from God, that we are spiritually disconnected from God as our God and our Savior. In the Bible also, they talk about three types of sin. We see two of those here. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And according to Psalm 32, there are three types of sin. The first sin is just simply that, to sin. The sin simply in the Greek means to miss the mark. It's like one who has an arrow who is trying to aim at getting a bullseye or getting close to the bullseye, uh, but you just fail every time. You're not able to hit the mark that you intend to. Another aspect of sin is not just sin to miss the mark, but it also is iniquity. Iniquity is a gross or immoral behavior. It is behavior that is unbecoming and unrighteous before the eyes of God. And then last but not least, we see an aspect of sin here called trespasses. Trespasses is simply this. It is to surpass a designated boundary. It's where God puts a line and says, you shall not cross this line, but yet we still see the line, we understand the line, but yet we still choose to go beyond the boundaries that God has given us. Sin, iniquity, and trespasses. In this very verse in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is very explicit. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now notice with me, the unbeliever is not just sick. Notice with me that the unbeliever is dead. He or she does not need to be, have a restitution or to be resuscitated in any way, but he or she needs resurrection. They need to be spiritually made alive. Not only do we see that this person is dead, we also see that they are disobedient. Look with me in verse 2, verses 3a. It says, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as uh, as the others were also. So not only were we dead, we were also disobedient. You know, there are three forces that encourage us in disobedience, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And we see these three aspects even working out in these verses right here. The world is, it simply can be defined as the world system. And the world system puts pressure on each person to try to get you to conform to standards that they have and that those, especially those who are contrary to the word of God. Perfect example in our modern day culture of seeing the world standards being manifested is the simple phrase, boys will be boys, right? 
that it just seems that there's no hope for our boys. Boys are just going to be loud. They're just going to be disobedient. They're going to be rambunctious. They're going to be all these things just because the world and the, the world's culture have accepted those things in that way. We not only have this aspect of the world, but we also have the devil. And yes, even the devil is mentioned here. He talks about him specifically in verse two. He says, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. This does not mean that Satan is personally at work in life of every unbeliever. Since Satan as a created being is limited in both time and also space. Satan is not like God who's omnipresent. Satan cannot be at all places at one time. But Satan does have demonic forces. He does have imps and demonic presence that he uses to exhort power and authority in the world system. And Satan, unfortunately, he influences the lives of all unbelievers and also seeks to influence believers. And what does he want? He wants you to make you a children of disobedience. He wants to make you disobedient to God's word, and he wants to make you disobedient to God and obedient to him. You know, one of Satan's chief ways of getting us to be disobedient is this aspect of lies. And listen, that, that one, the, reason why, uh, the reason why Satan uses lies is because Jesus described him as being the father of lies. He is the one who gives us and provides uh, lies in order to cause us to disobey God and to become disobedient to him. He is the liar from the very beginning, and he lies because that is the main resource, the only exclusive resource that he has. Notice with me the plight that we have. We were dead in our trespasses of sin. We were disobedient, but not only that, we see in verse 3b, we were also depraved. Now, when I say depraved, I do want to be very specific with you on what I'm saying here. When I talk about depraved or depravity, especially to the unsaved person, I am not saying that that person only does evil things. I'm not saying that that person is incapable of doing any aspects of good at all. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. I am saying that to be depraved means that you are incapable of doing anything to merit salvation or meet God's high standards for holiness. Means that we can't earn God's favor and love by the things that we do. So stay with me with me for, for a quick second, because again, we're talking about leading and lagging indicators. So here is the situation that we, God found us in. We were dead. We were disobedient. We were depraved. But not only were we depraved, look at verse 3, 3C with me. We are also doomed. Notice the words that Paul uses here. He says um, in verse 3, uh, 3C, he says, you are by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So here's where God has found us. We are dead. We can't respond spiritually to the things of God. We are disobedient. We don't have a heart or inclination to follow the ways of God. We are depraved. We cannot earn, despite our many efforts, we can't earn 
a right standing before God. And lastly, we're doomed. We're seen as being children of wrath. Now, someone may be thinking right now, how in the world can God's anger and his uh, justice or his love coexist? How, how can those two things work out? We're going to see that here in a moment. And uh, I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to see that here in a moment. Look with me in verse four. These are the formative words of all of scripture, <laughs> but God. <laughs> I love this. this. This word, but is a conjunction. It's a word that co connects two thoughts together. Conjunction is a word that connects two thoughts together. And the word but, though, has a special purpose. What the word but does is the word but literally cancels out any and everything that precedes what was said before the but. So please, gentlemen, be careful to, when you are talking to your girlfriend or significant other and say, I love you, but, because what you just did was you erased everything that you said before. And what you're saying is what I got to say now is the most important thing. I love verse four, and I think Paul is very purposeful in starting verse four with these two words, but God. Listen, all of us have had but God moments in our lives. And listen, if you are a Christian, this is the very means and essence of grace in your life, but God. Go back with me to Genesis chapter one with Adam and Eve sinning in that garden. They were totally separated from God from their disobedience, but God came and drew near to them and literally clothed them with animal skin when they were in twigs and sticks trying to cover their bodies in that, in that garden. Think with me to Noah. And the time where the God had saw the wickedness of the world and how he, every inclination of man's heart was evil and depraved. And God said, I'm going wa to wash away this world and I'm going to start new. But God found grace in Noah and his family. Think about Abraham, who was a pagan worshiper, a man who was beyond the ages, age of having children. Or, and God called him to be a father of many nations. Listen, those two words are instrumental and so important in every aspect of our lives, but God. Two words that make the most significance in every aspect of our life. So look with me what but God does. Not only um, do we see sins work against us, now we see God's work for us. Verse four reads this way. It says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has had for us made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespass, you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. I love these verses because it reminds us of how we're saved, that God found us in a depraved state. He found us in a dead state. He found us in a doomed state. He found us in a place where we were disobedient and we could not even follow the inclinations of our hearts to follow and love God. But God is the one who makes the first move. Notice with me that verses one through three are used to contrast verse four. In verses one through three, Paul paints the picture of our spiritual condition before God. And starting in verse four, instead of addressing our spiritual condition, what God does, what, what Paul does is he starts to remind us about the character and the nature of who God is. 
He mentions four specific things about God that are worth, worthy of note taking this morning. Number one, verse four, notice this about God. He loved us. You see, by nature, God is love. But God would love even if we were um, no sinners because love is a part of his very being. You know, there's two aspects of God's being that we talk about often in theology. We talk about the intrinsic attributes of God, and we talk about the relative attributes of God. The intrinsic attributes of God are those things that he possesses in himself. Those things are such as life and love and holiness. But then you also have the relative attributes of God. Those are things who, the intrinsic values are attributes of God are, are, is who God is. But the relative attributes are how we experience God, or especially how he, res, he relates to us as his creation. Let me give you an example. By nature, God is truth. But when he relates to man in truthfulness, God's truth becomes not just truth, it becomes faithfulness, right? God is the very essence and the very being, the very origin. There is no truth we can know apart from God because God is the very origin and essence of everything that is true, good, and holy. But the way that we experience that is not necessarily in truth. We also experience it in faithfulness. Let me give you another example. God is holy means that he is, he is separated uh, from the world. He's separated from things and, and, and in his holiness, and he is differentiated from the world. God is by his nature holy, but when he relates that to mankind and to us, we experience as something called justice. See, when we talk about the justice of God and having and wanting to experience justice, what we're talking about is not just justice, we're talking about the holiness of God, talking about the righteousness of God. In the same way, while love is one of God's most intrinsic attributes, but when this love is related to sinners, it becomes something special. It becomes grace and mercy. See, grace is simply this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. But listen, you can't understand grace if you don't understand mercy. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is the withholding of God. It's God withholding punishment from us that we deserve death. We deserve separation. We don't deserve to be in relationship with God. None of us in this room, none of us, under the sound of my voice deserves to be in front of or in the presence of or have relationship with a holy and righteous God. No one in this room can sit up here and say that I've done enough to have relationship with God. And it's by his mercy doesn't give us what we don't deserve, that he doesn't leave us to our own vices. He doesn't leave us and punish us as the children of wrath that we are and that we have shown ourselves to be. But it's, it's, to know God is not just to know him as a merciful God, a, a withholding God. God is not just a God who withholds his punishment. God is also a God who enters in into our brokenness. 
He enters in into our sadness. He enters in into our weakness. He enters in into our inability to do the things that we ought to do. You need a God of grace and you need a God of mercy. And never turn asunder those two things. They have to be held together because in those two attributes and in those two ways, we see the fullness and beauty of God's love. He is a God who withholds, but he's also a God who enters in. Let me give you a quick example of what that looks like. When I was living in uh, New Jersey, um, my kids had a loft where they would play and do different things. And one of our rules in our home was that you had to clean up the loft before you do other things. And one day, one of my sons, I'm not going to tell you which one, but he came down and said, Daddy, I want to go do other things. I said, well, listen, bro, if you want to do other things, you got to clean up your room. He said, all right, Daddy. I said, but listen, if you don't clean up your room, um, and, and I gave him a certain time, then listen, you got to have a timeout, bro, because, you know, you gotta, we've been working on this. You got to get it. You got to get it. All right, Daddy, I got it. I got it. He runs upstairs, and I hear rumbling and all this stuff going on. And then let, let, uh, about 10 minutes later, maybe five minutes later, he comes back down. Daddy, I'm done. <laughs> Daddy, I'm done. I, come look at what I did. So I go upstairs and I look at what he did. And honestly, it's probably worse than it was before because he got distracted and he started playing with toys instead of putting them away. So in that moment, I have a choice, right? As a dad, I have a choice. Either I can inflict the punishment I told him was that he was going to have a timeout. That is the right punishment. He knew that. He understood that. He agreed to that. But this is what mercy looks like. (laughs) Mercy looks like me not giving him that punishment. Now, he deserves that punishment because that's the punishment I told him he deserves. But in my choice as his father, I choose not to do that and I choose to give him mercy and I choose to withhold the punishment from upon him. Somebody help me out. What would grace look like in that moment? Raise your hand. This is church on the lawn. Y'all can participate. Yeah. Clean it for him. Get on my hands and knees. Right? I didn't make the mess, right? It's not, my, it's not my mess to clean up. This is the essence of what it looks like when God talks to us about his grace and mercy. God not only withholds the right punishment. Listen, and listen to me. The punishment we deserve is right and it's good. All of us are under the, the, the we're, we're at one time, if you are a Christian, you are under the, the rightful wrath of God. And listen, Those things that we are angry about are usually the things that we love the most. Anger is another face of love. You know what the opposite of love is? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's not to care. It's not to to care, not to want to get involved, not to want to enter in. That's what the opposite of love is. And in God's mercy and his grace, he not only withholds what is rightfully should be given to us, he also enters in and he gives us what we should not receive. Grace, mercy, love, kindness, goodness, the very presence of God. That's why Paul says, makes it very explicitly clear, you are saved by grace. Listen to me, if you don't hear anything else I'm saying tonight, I need you to hear this. You're not saved because of what, what, what seminary you went to. You're not saved because of the good preaching you were under. Listen, that helped, but that wasn't exclusively it. I can go to the funeral home right over there and preach a really good sermon to a lot of 
people who are there who are gone to be on with the Lord. You are saved by God's grace. You are saved by his mercy. And you're saved with a purpose. Look with me in verses eight through nine to kind of see what those purposes are in Ephesians 2. Oh, excuse me, before we do that, let me just say, I just want to say one thing. Look, look with me at verse five. He says, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. One thing really dawned on me this week as I was studying this text, and I want to share it with you. It's kind of the rule or the principle of kind of the, the greater or lesser thing, right? And I, I, think, I think you can apply that here in verse five. Remember what 2.1 says? It says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, right? You had no hope. You were unresponsive to God. I think verse five is meant to say as a greater or lesser thing, meaning that if God does the greater thing of raising you from the dead, if he does the greater thing of giving you spiritually life, even though you, you are incapable of getting spiritual life on your own, if God does the harder thing, won't he be good enough to do the lesser thing? And the lesser thing is to have relationship with you right? To draw near to you. If God raised you up and, and, and calls you to live, don't you think that that same God delights in having a relationship with you? If God did the hard thing, the impossible thing of giving you life when there was no life to give, when you couldn't give yourself life, if he does the hard thing, don't you think he delights in the small things? Doesn't he delight when you read his word? When you pray to him, when you look to him, don't you think he delights in you? When you come to him and cast every care that you have upon him, singing praises to him, don't you think he delights in that? If God did the harder thing, he delights in the lesser thing. He, if he did the hard thing, he, he delights in the lesser things. Look with me in verses uh, six through, starting at seven, it says, uh, verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Love this because again, it's reminding us that we are saved by grace through faith. And it says, and this is not from yourself. That word in Greek, this, maybe your translation may say that, I don't know. But that word, this, um, oftentimes is confused as being related to faith. But in the Greek, this, this word, this, is a neuter. It has a neuter uh, gender tense, meaning that um, it, it has a nondescriptive sense of being male or female. As opposed to the, the word faith here in the Greek, it actually has a feminine gender-specific uh, kind of causation here. So when he says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. He is not talking about faith here. He, he's not saying that you are saved by grace through faith and faith is not from itself. It is a God's gift. He's not talking about faith. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's saying salvation is the gift from God. Not your faith. Not how well you believe. Not how well you obey. He says salvation is the gift from God. Verse 9, not from works. Salvation is not from works. 
Why? So that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. This Greek word uh, here, workmanship, comes from the, the word that we have as a poem or a po- poeia. It is a word that we get our word poem from in the English language. And what Paul is saying here is that we are his masterpiece. We are his poem. We are the ones in which God is writing a beautiful expression of his love to us and to all creation. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's poem created in Christ Jesus for good works. Check this out, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I love this because it goes back to Ephesians 1.4, that he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in love before him. That God has already predestined good works for you to do. That you don't have to go out and try to figure it out on yourself. That God has given you the opportunity to have good works placed before you as his child. You don't have to try to work and do good things and do good works. Ephesians 10 says you are God's masterpiece. You are God's creation. And God, as God's creation, he's already planned out good works for you to do do ahead of time. That's why we have the mantra identity, identity precedes function, right? That's why we talk about that so much in our church. Because if it was so important for us to do good works in order to be saved or accepted by God, why did God call us as his masterpiece? He saved us and then put good works before us that we don't even know about or even have yet seen. So listen, any good thing that we do, any good work that we have as a church, we need to turn back to God and say, thank you, God. Right? This is not for my own doing. It's not for my own purposes. It's not for my own glory. It's for your glory and your glory alone. And verses 1 through, two, one, one through 10 is, in the Greek, it's, it's one long, lengthy aspect of just Paul's writing. But then he transitions there here to verse 11. And it's really important for us not to disconnect what has happened in verses 1 through 10 with verses 11 through 22. Now, in verses 11 through 22, listen, what I want to do is I want to take a high view of this because we really don't have all the time. I wish we did, but we don't have the time to parse through every little nook and cranny that God intended us to to see and know. But what I want to do is highlight just some major things for us and for our time this morning. Verse 11 starts off this. It says, so then. And in other translations, it says, therefore. And that therefore is is there for a reason. That verse 11, therefore, is to connect us. It's a connector word. It's to relate what has happened before to what is about to happen now. And what Paul is saying is is, is this. He's saying, listen, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from work so that you don't have to boast. You are God's workmanship. He created you to do good works ahead of time to walk therein. As As a result of that, know this. Verse 11, he wants us to remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by the human hands. Paul is now turning his attention specifically to the Gentiles. 
The church at Ephesus was a beautiful church. It was a church made of mostly Gentile believers. There were some Jewish believers, but it was mostly Gentile believers. And I believe in verses one through 10, Paul is specifically talking to those Jewish believers and having to understand that you are saved not because of the law, you are saved because of Christ. You are saved because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And now in verses 11 through 22, he turns his attention more towards the Gentiles and he speaks to them directly. He says, listen, remember that you at one time, you were called Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcision. Listen, what Paul is doing here is Paul is acknowledging the division that is happening in the church that the Jewish leaders and the Jewish, the Jewish Christians at the time thought and understood that in order to be Christian, you first had to become a Jew. That you had to become like me and do the things that I do, do the things that I, I like to do. You had to, uh, you had to assimilate to my cultural, my cultural expectations in order to be accepted by Christ. And what Paul is doing here in verses 11 through 22 is dismantling that theory all demolishing and dismantling that theory in itself. He says here, remember that you too at one time were Gentiles in the flesh. Verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the relationship to Israel and the foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, here's that, but in verse five or verse four, excuse me, we have, but God. In verse 13, we have, but now, getting that word, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away or far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've said it many times, but I think it's appropriate to remind us, even as we uh, end our time here today, I think it's important to remind us, remember we said that reconciliation cannot happen between two unequal parties. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to get the the people, the church, at, the church at Ephesus to understand that they have been reconciled by the blood of Christ. And because they've been reconciled, they're on evil, equal playing field. The Jews felt that the law and their cultural heritage made them superior and more dominant in the church. And Paul uses the first 10 verses to say, no, 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 no. By grace, you've been saved. <laughs> there's no other means you've been saved. There, there's no other thing that you can do except to look to the grace that God has provided for you in his son, Jesus, with the bloody cross and empty tomb. And in the same breath, he looks at the Gentiles who, have, who don't have the promises of the nation of Israel, who are far off, who are, are just learning and understanding this aspect of Christianity. He's saying, listen, you've been brought near, not because you hang around Jewish people or because you're in the Jewish context. You've been brought near the same way they have, which is by the blood of Jesus. And what Paul is doing is he's dismantling these unequal platforms that both the Jewish Christians and the, Jew the Gentile Christians are standing upon. Those who say, you have to become like me to be accepted by Jesus. And those who stand on the mantra, I'm not like you, so therefore I can't be accepted by Jesus. He's talking to both parties and he's allowing the blood of Christ to make them equal. Listen, there's no other equality that we can have. There's no other equality that God has given us except for the blood of Christ to allow us to be made equals with one another. To allow us to see each other truly as we are. And listen, I, when, when I was a young preacher, I used to get really upset with the church 
I used to look at Amazon and uh, Apple and all these great Fortune 500 companies, and I see all these diversities of people coming together and working together and living together. And in my mind, I said, man, what's wrong with the church? <laughs> Why can't the church be like this, right? Diversities of people and diversity of language and diversity of culture. And I used to think in my mind, oh my gosh, like the church is like a thousand years behind. What's wrong with the church? And listen to me, there are a lot of things wrong with the church. Yes, it is. But the, even what the things that are wrong by the church is still being perfected by the only one who can perfect it and can perfect anyone, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The hope of the church is not the people who are a part of it. The hope of the church is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And what I had to come to understand is that there's a difference between having the presence of diversity and having the aspect of unification, right? Even at the uh, Princeton University where I was for seven years, you see this aspect of diversity where everyone was invited to the table, but even on the platform of diversity, there were still hierarchical structures and there were still ways in which reconciliation could not happen because people were on different platforms. The only way and the only means that God, and, and by God's grace, he had to show me this because I really was frustrated for many years about the church. But what God has shown me even through this passage is that because Jesus Christ is the, the cornerstone of the church, because Jesus Christ is the one who spilled his blood for the church, the church is the only place and the only means by which we truly can see reconciliation in this world. There's no other place. Because listen, IBM can have diversity, but listen, I tell you this, I know it because I have friends who go and do it all the time. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars of having consultants come in to help them talk about not just having diversity, but having unity. Because even though they have the, the, the image of diversity, even though they have the image of having a multi-ethnic group, they're still not relationally connected. And the reason why they're connected, not connected, is because we can only be connected and we can only find true reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. And the church of the one true living God, the church of God is a place, is the only place that God has provided for us to have reconciliation. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and because Jesus Christ shed his blood so that you and I can have reconciliation. Reconciliation is not just saying, I want to be around you. Reconciliation is not just saying, I tolerate you. You know what true reconciliation says? It says, I need you. I need you. I need Pastor Norm in my life to complete my life and help me to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I need Pastor Nick. Me and Pastor Nick talk about this all the time and laugh about it. You know, who knew that God would bring a pastor from Dallas and from Detroit together to be pastors of a church in Louisville, Kentucky? Like, God just has a crazy sense of humor. But I can literally stand up here with full confidence and tell you, working with Pastor Nick, befriending him, crying with him, weeping with him, Pastor Norm, as elders of this church, I, I need them as brothers. I don't just want them. I don't just tolerate them. I need them. Because the blood of Christ has been doing a work in our hearts in such a way that I literally can't imagine doing this job without these brothers. And listen to me, 
That, don't, that doesn't just stand for us as elders. That stands for you as brothers and sisters in Christ. IBM, Apple, Google, they can want each other. They can tolerate each other. But listen, it's only by the blood of Christ that we can look at each other in the eyes and say, I need you. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the gift it is to know you and be known by you. We thank you for the gift of today. Thank you that you have given the church all that she needs to prosper, Father, in Jesus. There's no, there's no thing, there's nothing lacking in the church because of Christ. But Lord, I do pray that you will grow us into that reality. Father, forgive us for thinking in our sinful and prideful hearts and even my sinful and prideful hearts where I look outside the church for the things that I long for, unity and reconciliation. Father, I, I ask that you would help us and all, all of us to see the beauty and the glory it is to be a part of the organism that you call your church. Father, help us to go from not just wanting, uh, not just wanting or tolerating one another, help us to actually need and depend upon one another. Show us what that looks like, God, through the blood of Christ, through him being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the only one who's uh, the chief cornerstone of the church. And because of that, we have hope in you. We have hope in what you're doing. And we have your hope in what the purpose is that you are bringing us together as Soldier and Carlisle. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who may be dead in their trespasses and sins. I pray that they will see Christ for who he is. It's the only means and the only hope for their salvation. Not works, not further study, not yoga or meditation. But it's you. It's the blood that you've shared. Open our eyes to the reality of the gospel. Deepen our love for you and love for one another as a result of the gospel. Unite our hearts together as a church family in light of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields Jr., lead pastor of Soldier and Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the South End of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless.